Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Let's hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. With God's help this evening, let's focus our attention on verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Scriptures describe this life as a valley of tears. You can read about this throughout the Psalms. In fact, the phrase itself comes from Psalm 84, verse 6. This is one of the beautiful aspects of the Psalms that it represents real life in a fallen world. Psalm 84, verse 6, speaking of the the Lord's pilgrims on their path to Zion, as they pass through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears, they make it a spring. As we sing in our psalm book, we know it's the Lord who ultimately does that, that the Lord makes the valley of tears to be a spring. Those events that cause grief, the Lord uses to strengthen us, to, to, to give us the endurance that we need in a dry and thirsty land we drink down His sustaining grace even in the midst of grief. It's a valley of tears. In fact, as I said, if you go through the Psalms, you see this theme of weeping and of tears as part of the Christian life and life in general. Psalm 6, verse 6. Just just listen to these. You don't have to look them all up. Psalm 6, verse 6. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed to swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. Weary with groaning, he's swimming in tears, lying in agony and in despair on his couch. Psalm 42, verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? So he's hungering and thirsting after the presence of God like a deer thirsts for the streams of water and pants. But 
the only thing that he has to feast upon is his own tears. Psalm 69 and verse 3. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Weary with crying. Weary with weeping. Psalm 80 Verse 5, speaking of the Lord's chastisements upon His people, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. Psalm 102, verse 9, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Psalm 119, verse 136, a somewhat different motivation for tears and yet tears nonetheless. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. This is a valley of tears. Whether you're a non-Christian, maybe somebody's a non-Christian and they're living it up and, and maybe the, the tears are coming. But for the Christian, we know full well that this is a valley of tears. Because we understand that they hated Christ, they will hate us. We're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it is a battle. It is an utter firefight against the enemies of God. And we live in a world of affliction and pain and suffering. We know what it's like. And if we know what it's like, as privileged and easy as our lives are, how much more the saints of God scattered throughout the world. This is a valley of tears. Scripture contains many notable examples of tears being shed. We think of Rachel weeping for her children, but they are not. In fact, the Bible picks up on that. Literal Rachel weeping, but then when the captivity into Babylon comes, that imagery is used in Jeremiah 31, and then it's picked up on uh, when Herod slaughters the innocent children in Bethlehem and in the early chapters of the Gospels. Rachel weeping for her children. We think of Tamar weeping in her anguish, having been violated. We think of David weeping over his son Absalom. Jeremiah weeping rivers of tears over Judah and its sin and its captivity. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself weeping at Lazarus' tomb and weeping over the city and the sinners of Jerusalem. We think of Peter weeping when he fixes his eyes upon the Lord whom he has just denied three times. He, he is overwhelmed with grief and he goes out into the night weeping bitterly. Our minds are drawn to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb when she is weeping. And the angels say, Why weepest thou? And Jesus, whom she thinks is a gardener, comes to her and says, Why weepest thou? She's weeping for her Lord at the tomb. And the last one I'll mention is not in chronological order, but I think it's perhaps one that uh, in our own time we can really study to great profit for our souls. And that is the sinful woman who used her tears to wash the Savior's feet in Luke chapter 7. She turned her mourning and grief into an act of worship. Scripture contains many of these examples. Perhaps others come to your mind. And Scripture also records many words of great comfort that the Lord brings to those believing mourners who shed tears. Again, we we have to rely on the Psalms this book that God has graciously given to us to sing, but also to read and preach and think about. Psalm 30, verse 5, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 56, verse 8, which we sang earlier, You number my wanderings, you put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? The Lord records the sorrow of His people just as the manna was placed in a jar for remembrance and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Even so, there is, as it were, a bottle or a jar of God's people's tears that that are placed in the heart of Christ Himself. 
Psalm 84, verse 6, we already said, talks about our tears and our grief being turned by the Lord through our pilgrimage, turned for good, worked out for good, such that those tears become a pool of water and refreshment. Before the service, we sang from Psalm 116, verse 8, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears. Many words of encouragement. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joy at the harvest time. Psalm 126, verse 5. The prophet Isaiah has many, many encouraging words. Just a couple examples here. In describing Hezekiah's uh, sorrow over the sickness, the deadly disease that came into his life, and he cried out and wept before the Lord and cried out for healing. Isaiah 38, verse 5, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. And then Psalm 63, verse 9, God showing compassion toward His people in the wilderness in all their affliction. He Himself was afflicted. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, there, there are so many words of comfort in the Scriptures to those who weep. And perhaps there's no more comforting promise in all the Bible than what we find in our text. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 25 verse 8, which we were able to incorporate into our worship service by way of the call to worship. You can see that there in your bulletin. That's repeated again in Revelation 7 verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there's that promise. Perhaps the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most comforting promise for the Christian mourner in all the Bible. God will do it. God will wipe away all those tears. And naturally, our thoughts turn to that good shepherd that we just read about in Revelation 7. Our thoughts naturally turn to our incarnate Savior. Our thoughts naturally, naturally turn to Him because the Scripture describes Him in His earthly life as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Bible describes Him as one who wept, as I said, at the tomb of Lazarus, who wept over Jerusalem. The Bible never records Him laughing. Not that that makes nothing wrong with laughing, but it doesn't record Him laughing, but it does record him weeping. And he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with griefs, uh, grief. And in fact, in the very next verse, Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. And we know from the Gospels, He was not simply wounded in His physical body, but He was wounded to the depth of His soul, sorrowful even unto death. So we naturally think of the Lord Jesus Christ as our sympathetic High Priest who's been tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Our great High Priest who yet condescends to our weaknesses. He understands what we're going through. And the Scriptures tell us that He learned obedience through suffering. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, listen to what it says. Speaking of Christ, who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear goes on to say that He learned obedience through the things which He suffered. So Jesus knows what it's like to utter vehement, loud, sobbing cries and tears. And so we can think of Him as one to whom we can come when we're mourning. One to whom we can come. 
He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, but we can add those who are grieving, those who are mourning, for any of the reasons we we saw in the scriptural examples and perhaps even more. You see in Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, after John the Baptist was beheaded, we're told, then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Uh, There's a great 19th century Calvinistic preacher who has a, I think there's a chapel library tract, in fact, where the sermon title is, Go and Tell Jesus. Go and Tell Jesus. The disciples of John, full of grief, their leader, their master, the, the one who was spiritually leading them and discipling them in the faith, he was beheaded mercilessly. And his body was just thrown out as a, as a piece of garbage. And they took it up and they buried it. And they were grief-stricken. But they told Jesus. And Jesus listened to them. And Jesus, we trust, comforted them. So it's natural for us when we hear that God will wipe away all tears from the eyes of His people that we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. And had I not spent more time studying this passage, that's probably the direction that we would have gone. But our text, both Revelation 21.4, Revelation 7, verse 17, Isaiah 25, verse 8, all of these texts that contain this glorious comforting promise take us in a slightly different direction. They don't, they don't take us away from the incarnate comfort of God the Son in human flesh, but they do give us a little bit different angle, a different aspect here that that is highlighted for us. And it's significant that in all those passages, the reference to the one who is actually drying our tears, the reference is to God. Now, Jesus is God, and, and so that shouldn't be a stumbling block there to say that. But often when God is mentioned using that term, that name, that title, God, It's referring either to the three persons of the Trinity or to the Father in particular. And so, sometimes it refers to Christ, but uh, listen again to Revelation 7, verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So you have the Lamb as God incarnate, visibly, tangibly shepherding His people. But then you have this reference now. Not, it's not the Lamb who dries their tears. It's God who dries their tears. And in the early verses of Revelation 21, we're not saying God incarnate is absent. We're not saying that concept is not there or that His person is not referenced. But notice the language. Verse 3, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no doubt that the incarnation of Christ and His personal, physical, human presence there in heaven to look upon, to see face to face, is involved in this. But the Scriptures are clear in every one of these cases that it's the the broader notion of God, the, the divine being, that is actually the one who is drying our tears. And that is very, very significant. Sometimes we think of Jesus as if He's sympathetic and He's merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and all of these things toward us. And we, we tend to associate that with His human nature as if that's why He's so merciful because He's one of us and He's flesh of our flesh. And of course, that helps to reinforce it. But the fact of the matter is that the nature of God Himself is good and gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And if we think that somehow God incarnate is somehow superior to God in Himself, then we've made a grave mistake. And we've actually missed the entire point. We've missed the entire point of the incarnation of God in human flesh. We have seriously missed the point. Because the fact of the matter is, Jesus came to reveal who God is. 
Jesus is merciful and comforting and compassionate. Jesus exemplifies love so that He can say, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came into this world because the Father graciously, compassionately, lovingly sent Him into this world. And the whole point that God sent, the reason why God sent His Son into this world was so that we would come to God through Him and experience the infinite mercy and compassion and love and comfort of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is infinite in everything that He is and does. So, yes, the incarnation is a bridge between God and man. But we don't merely, if I can say this, if you understand where I'm, what I'm trying to say here, we don't just stay on the bridge. We come to God through Christ. It's through the God-man mediator that we travel that new and living way into the presence of God and His infinite love of which the incarnate love of the God-man mediator is just an expression and a manifestation of the infinite love of God. God sent His Son so that we would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So yes, we revel at the face of Jesus Christ, but it's reflecting the glory, and one aspect of that glory is love and compassion and comfort of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that God has revealed Himself in various ways in the Old Testament through the prophets, but now He reveals Himself through His Son, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can think of it specifically as the Father, if that's helpful. The Father reveals Himself. It says the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person in His Son. Titus 3.4 says that when the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Jesus is the loving kindness of God incarnate. And it's important to see here that in these verses where we would naturally be drawn to think of Jesus in His physical humanity, wiping away our tears, that it says, in fact, that it is God who wipes away our tears. Divine comfort from the divine being. And again, if we misunderstand this, we're forgetting the all-sufficient superiority of the divine nature of God. That He is omnipotent. That He has all power. Infinite, limitless, boundless power. Omnipotent. He, is omni, he has omniscience. Omniscience. Omniscient. He has all knowledge. He knows all things perfectly, exhaustively. He is omnipresent. So He's everywhere. In fact, everything that exists lives and moves and has its being in Him. So He's beyond everywhere. He's transspatial. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is boundless. And that means that God's comfort and the power and strength that He exerts on behalf of His people is infinite. And the grace and the power and strength that He bestows upon His people is out of an infinite reservoir. It's through Christ. It's from God. The incarnation facilitates, enables us to have access to this divine all-sufficiency, but we cannot forget that at the end of the day, it's from God. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And when we lose sight of that, another thing that we miss is the significance of the divine indwelling. We miss the significance of what it means for the life of God to dwell in the souls of men and women and children. The divine presence in the believer. We're called temples of the Holy Spirit, temples of God throughout the New Testament, both collectively and individually. Christ in us, the hope of glory, which tells us that the experience we have of Jesus Christ living in us, the life that I now live, I live through faith in the Son of God who lives in me. Paul says that in Galatians. That is just, by the Holy Spirit, that, that's just a down payment on the glory that is to come. We will be indwelt 
by the fullness of God in our souls in a way that transcends what we have now. But this is a foretaste. This is something. This is the, uh, the first fruits of glory. This is the earnest, the down payment of the Spirit. But we can't, we can't fall into the trap of underestimating the divine indwelling. In fact, as significant as it is to see Christ in His humanity face to face, as significant as it would be and as it will be for believers to be in the presence of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ in glory, seeing Him face to face as, as amazing and powerful and desirable as that is. Okay, so we're not denying that. Nevertheless, notice what Jesus says in John 16 verse 7 to His disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Uh, Well, let me read the previous verse, actually. He says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And that's the Holy Spirit, that other Comforter, that comes at the day of Pentecost and and the the fullness of the extent of New Testament indwelling which far exceeds the Old Testament experience of the believer. The Helper, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you but if I depart, I will send Him to you. So understand this. Jesus is saying here, that the absence of His resurrected, glorified, incarnate humanity in heaven, right? He's absent. He's in heaven. That absence is to the advantage of the believer if it means that the, the greater fullness of the Spirit dwells in the new covenant people of God. That to have that divine indwelling, not denying it for the Old Testament saints, you understand, but, but the greater fullness of the New Testament, to to be filled with the divine presence of the Spirit of God is an advantage. It's better to have that and to be separated from the humanity of Christ. Now in heaven we get both. So we're not discounting the physical presence of Christ. But what we're saying is Jesus Himself says that that divine indwelling is of greater advantage than to simply be in His presence at a close proximity and to see Him face to face. And really, if you think about it, the fact that He is in heaven and He's absent and the fact that we do have the Holy Spirit, that means that's what Jesus wanted to happen and we know Jesus loves us. So, you know, do the math. It's better. Jesus wanted us to have the fullness of the divine indwelling for the New Testament Christian and to be absent from His physical presence. He wanted that. He ordained that as an advantage for His church as He strategically conquers the world and advances His kingdom and seeks to be a blessing to His people. So, we're not pitting these things against each other any more than Jesus is in the verse. We desire to have both, and we will for all eternity. But let's not underestimate the significance of the divine presence in the soul of the believer, because that's, that's inestimable in its significance. Even in heaven, when we have the physical presence of the glorified Christ and we see Him face to face, nevertheless, even in heaven, the sight and sense of our souls, the perception of our souls, will remain vital to our knowledge of God. So it's not merely that heaven is a bunch of sights and smells and of course all of our senses whatever whatever they look like whatever however they function all of them will resound to the glory of God and will increase our experience of God and his glory and his love that is true but in heaven we will still be thinking we will still be perceiving the glory of the invisible God who dwells in inapproachable light we'll still be perceiving him with the sight and sense of the soul in other words, I know faith and sight are contrasted in this life. We walk by faith, not by sight, but then we'll see Him face to face. I'm not denying that. But even when we see Him face to face, it's going to involve the knowledge of our minds, perceiving and knowing God beyond simply the incarnate God in the person of Christ, 
but knowing the divine being who is invisible. We'll still be seeing Him who is invisible. We'll see tokens of His glory in heaven. We'll see a greater, more amazing display. But at the end of the day, God's being is still invisible and we'll still need to perceive it with the sight and sense of our soul. So heaven is not merely seeing Christ's humanity, but it is knowing all three persons of the Trinity. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. At the last day, uh, why will we be crying? There's a question. I'm not going to claim to be able to fully answer that. Perhaps some will be weeping for family members who have been lost. Possibly. Some people have suggested that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that church leaders will give an account to God for their shepherding ministry and that in some cases they're going to give their account with grief. And when they do give their account with grief, in other words, they're just pouring out their hearts at, like you think of Moses perhaps would unfortunately have to do this, pour out his heart at the stubbornness of God's people. And the author to the Hebrews says that if they give their account with that grief, it's not going to be to the advantage of the person who caused the grief. And that's true children. If your parents give an account at the last day that you were just a nightmare, you weren't honoring and respecting and obeying them, you know, husbands, wives. One of the aspects of the divine judgment at the last day will actually be in that exit interview an opportunity as, as you're going back through the facts of the case for God to receive that outcry of grief and pain and dry your tears. But it's not going to be the advantage of the person who caused the tears. So let's, we, we want to minimize that as best as we can. But he's, he's drying their tears, but it's God who's doing it. It's God who's comforting His people, not necessarily through Christ physically with a tissue, but God in the soul bringing comfort that just can't be described with words. But we've felt it if we're believers. We know what that is. And, and it's, in one sense, even more powerful for God to be on the inside comforting us and for Christ to be on the outside drying our... T- I mean, the whole thing is just a, a wonderful beautiful picture that is accurate. And uh, Matthew 5, verse 8, notice it's the pure in heart that will see God. The pure in heart. And that reference to the heart means that we're not, again, simply looking at the humanity of Christ, but the pure in heart shall see God. God in the person of Christ, but also through the eyes of the heart and the mind, perceiving God's attributes, His power, His justice, His righteousness, His goodness, His wisdom. The pure in heart will have all of those distractions taken away and they'll be able to see for all eternity more and more and more of the beauty and glory of the divine nature and of all three persons of the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, which... I've alluded to several times, and obviously we're in a sermon series on this chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. I want you to see there that to see face to face is equated with knowing. And we could go, we don't have time... um, We could go to a number of other passages that talk about us seeing Christ, seeing face to face, but they all involve this reference to knowing. To see and to know are the same. To see is to know. To know is to see. So it's not merely physical sight, but it's spiritual, intellectual, experiential knowledge of God. To see is to know. And if that's true in heaven... I mean, Revelation 22, verse 4, they shall see His face and His name shall be on their foreheads. If that is true in heaven, how much more is it true in this life as we're walking by faith? We don't see hardly anything of the, you know, compared to what we'll see in heaven. We don't see the, the same degree of the manifestation of the glory of God. And part of that is sin. We should see God in every molecule, every 
you know, the, the heavens declare His glory. Everything ought to be screaming the knowledge and glory of God. But we don't see it. We walk by faith, not by sight. So how much more is the sight and sense of the soul in this life? How much more significant the spiritual indwelling of God in the human soul of the believer in this life? Because we don't see Him face to face. So all we've got right now is this spiritual perception of God through the the presence of the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of our hearts to see Him who is invisible and to see Him by faith. And it's interesting if you look at Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul prays for the Ephesian believers and he prays for them in terms of their Christian life in this world and notice the language that is used here. He says, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, so it's through Christ, but it's the Father granting, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So he's praying that the presence of God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in the believer's soul would provide strength, would provide fortitude and comfort. Right? You see in that word, come fort, to give strength, fortitude, to communicate strength and fortitude. The Holy Spirit comes to comfort us, to strengthen us, to impart strength to us by His presence in our lives. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So there's Christ, second person of the Trinity, according to His divine omnipresence, dwelling inside the believer as in a holy temple. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he's saying that that would be more and more experienced by faith. We know it's true of the believer, but by faith, believing it, and then, therefore, looking around in there to find him. Lord, you're in there, you know, you're, you're inside of me talking to him, cultivating that, reading scripture, meditating on it, believing that he's in there, finding, seeking and finding him. Where, where can I go that I might find him, says Job? Well, he's in, he's in there. He's, he's in, if you're a believer, he's in there. Just look for him in his promises, and you'll find him by believing those promises. You'll experience him. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able, speaking of the church collectively, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. So it's not some physical manifestation of Jesus, but we're comprehending it. As it were, we're seeing the dimensions. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of of God. How does God dry your tears? That's how. That's how. All three persons of the Trinity living inside of you. The Spirit strengthening you, comforting you. Christ is dwelling in your heart through faith as your beloved, as your bridegroom. He's there. Your sympathetic high priest. Not seeing Him face to face, but He's actually inside of you. It's even more intimate. It is, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Christ in you is actually more intimate than you face to face with Christ. In heaven you get both. You get both. We're big fans of both. But in this life, right now, you have Christ living inside of you. And the Father as well. You're filled with all the fullness of God. Now, Paul's praying that they would experience this more and more. It's true in principle, but by faith and through prayer, we need to cultivate this and realize what we have right now. We have God living inside of us. So that, yes, he dries our tears in that exit interview at the end of history when we're, you know, but he also is present right now to dry our tears and to give us comfort. And I would ask you, Can you imagine God Himself, the God who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Can you imagine that God comforting you and drying your tears? 
Can you imagine that God, not God in the person of Christ, not God incarnate, God, the three persons of the Trinity, drying your tears? You need to think about that. Because if you can't in any sense imagine what that is or believe that that is the case, you've missed, as I said, you've missed the point of the incarnation itself. Christ is compassionate to lead us to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are all three in one compassionate. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And maybe that's what Psalm 84 means when it says that the the valley of tears becomes a spring. Because as we weep and as that grief accumulates for some believers, they're able to receive the comfort from the Lord and provide refreshment for other people and so on and so forth. It's a collective. It's a corporate ministry. God comforts us. We comfort others. We all provide refreshment for each other's souls in the midst of difficult times in the wilderness of this life. But again, can you imagine God Himself drying your tears? Think about the way Jesus depicts our Heavenly Father in the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. When the prodigal comes to his senses, he arises, he goes back to his father to confess his sin against heaven and against his father. Notice in verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. By the way, some people try to say the Father represents Jesus here. Jesus, that's not the case. That is misreading this parable. Jesus is the elder brother we should have had. The Father is the Father. He's depicting here the Father's love. The prodigal arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And Jesus is saying this is what it is for people who repent and turn to the Lord, whether it's at conversion, whether it's after a time of backsliding, whether it's every day coming to the Father through Christ, confessing your sins. When you arise and go to your Father through Christ, we're told that your Father's going to act like this. This is His response. He saw Him and had compassion and ran and fell on His neck and kissed him. If he had tears, he was drying his tears. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Listen, the Lord's Supper is a feast of the Father's love. That's what it is. It's many other things, but it's a love feast. It's a feast of the love of our Heavenly Father. Do you view it that way? Do you, do you, do you recognize that every aspect of the work of Christ that is pictured in the Lord's Supper is tailor-made by God to reveal His divine love. The Lord's Supper is a feast of the Father's love. We can talk about Christ's love, and Paul prays that we would be able to perceive the infinite dimensions of the love of Christ, but understand Christ's love is a fruit of God's love. Christ's love is God's love, but, but the point is the fact that God would send His Son to express that love presupposes the Father's love to begin with. Indeed, presupposes the eternal love of all three persons of the Trinity for the people of God. And as you read the New Testament, nothing could be emphasized more frequently than this very fact. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, a familiar passage. Now hope does not disappoint, but because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But listen, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we remember the Lord's death until He comes, but when we remember the Lord's death, that Christ died for us when we were still sinners, we're supposed to then look beyond the the death of Christ to the source of that death, the Father's love who sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In fact, that's that's exactly the text that I wanted to quote here. 1 John 4.10 In this is love... Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn away God's wrath and gain God's favor upon us as guilty sinners. And he goes on, verse 16, God is love, in the middle of the verse, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. So when you come to the Lord's table, In fact, when you get up in the morning, at any point in your Christian life, you need to be abiding in God and abiding in His love. You need to avoid anything that's going to take you out of the felt sense of God's love, that's going to distract you, that's going to, you know, sins that are going to entangle you and put a burden of guilt and separate you from the felt sense of His presence in your life and His love for you and the death of Christ, you know, you, you, you need to be thinking about it. You need to be remembering it. You need to be contemplating it to keep yourself in the love of God. And Jude, in Jude verse 12, says that the Lord's Supper is a love feast. It's a love feast. Unfortunately, there are people partaking of that love feast that are not believers, that, that are not the Lord's people, that are sinners, unrepentant sinners who ought to fear God and repent of their sin. But he calls it a love feast. And then he goes on, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do you avoid going off the rails? Keep yourself. It's active. It's not just saying, well, God loves you, let go and let God. It's saying actively, consciously contemplate, okay, God lives inside of me. Well, which persons? Okay, the Father lives inside of me. What do I know about Him? How can I experience Him? John Owen talks about this in his book on communion with all three persons of the Trinity. Think about the Son of God, who He is, who He's shown Himself to be in the Gospels. He lives inside of me. He loves me. He's an expression of the Father's love. And the Father gave me to Him as a love gift from all eternity. The Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in my heart. Holy Spirit, I know you're in there somewhere. You know, talk to God. Talk to God. Don't, don't pray prayers up at the ceiling. And God's inside of you. He's not just up in heaven. Yes, that's a helpful paradigm. But also this, that He's inside of you. Distinct from you, right? You and I are sinners. God is holy. But somehow, miraculously, all three persons dwell in our hearts through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And if God is love, then God in your life is God's love in your life. God dwelling in you is God's love dwelling in you. If it's the case that we live and move and have our being in, in God, as the Bible teaches, then for the believer, guess what? That means that you are living and moving and having your being in lo- the love of God. The love which is an attribute of God, the God who is love. You are living and breathing and, and you, it's inescapable. You can't get away from the presence of the God who is love. You can't get away from that if you're a Christian. And so you need, and yet, and yet, I, I said and so, but really it's and yet, you need to strive to keep yourself in it, to keep yourself in the conscious awareness of it. And that's one of the reasons we have the Lord's Supper, is so that we can come and partake of union and communion with the God-man, Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, so that through this love feast, our union with Christ can be cultivated and stirred up and confirmed and sealed and signified so that We're united and we're communing with Jesus Christ who is God. So now we're connected through Christ 
to all three persons of the Godhead, and we are filled and surrounded by the love of God. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, how does God dry our tears? How's He going to do it at the last day? I can't say for sure. Maybe it is Jesus. Maybe it's both. But I can tell you this. Right now, God will dry your tears. Right now, He will comfort you. Right now, the power and presence of God Himself in your heart as you claim that promise by faith, He will dry your tears. He will strengthen you. He will give you everything you need for life and godliness. He'll produce the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy. But you have to believe. You have to believe that promise and keep yourself in the love of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are beyond our comprehension and yet You have revealed Yourself and Your revelation is accurate and true and faithful and it is knowable and therefore You are knowable. And we thank You for that great privilege of all of the things that You have made, all of the creatures that inhabit this earth, You've made us to know You and to have a relationship with You and to enjoy Your love. We pray that You would help us to do that. Forgive us where we haven't sought Your love, where we haven't kept ourselves in it, where we haven't abided in it, where it's been out of sight, out of mind, and we've been off in the foreign land spending and being spent on spiritual harlots. Bring us to our senses. Restore us to You, our Heavenly Father. Embrace us. Dry our tears. Give us a pat on the back. Give us a hug. Kiss our neck and and, uh, give us the ring on our finger and the robe and the sandals and help us to celebrate this feast of Your love and to eat and drink and to be merry and joyful that we who, are, who were lost have been found. Help us to enter into the joy of our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.